Welcome to this episode of Virtuosa Society Podcast Between the Bio Series. I'm Katie Harmon, host of the Virtuosa Society Podcast and founder of Virtuosa Society. We're a collective of female creatives committed to elevating the non-linear journey of creativity. Between the Bio interviews are meant to dig a little deeper between the highlights in a creative's bio, into the spaces and pockets of their experience where the nuances, challenges, truths, and growth really happen. Because we don't talk about them nearly enough, and because conversations like this are vital for understanding the uniqueness and sameness of life as a female creative. Episode 7 of the Virtuosa Society podcast featured the story of four women instrumental to Tin Pan Alley and the American popular music landscape, and their struggles to be recognized beyond male pseudonyms and partnerships. Today's interview is with star of Broadway and Cabaret, Natalie Douglas, who is one of the foremost interpreters of the Great American Songbook, including the beloved works of the four women featured in Episode 7, Irene Higginbotham, Billie Holiday, Dorothy Fields, and Anne Rennell. Before we get into our interview, I want to share with you Natalie's incredible bio. Natalie Douglas is a 21st century vocalist with a strong foundation in the traditional pop vocals of the American songbook and equally fierce devotion to the modern jazz, blues, rock, and country influences of her childhood. Like her idol Nina Simone, Natalie is drawn to lyrics that tell a compelling story, no matter what genre. Douglas is a two-time bistro, nightlife, and 13-time Mac Award winner whose international performances have taken her from concert halls to theaters to intimate clubs and everywhere in between. She's produced and performed in 80 concerts at her musical home, Birdland Jazz Club in New York City, most notably her Tributes series, celebrating artists she loves, including Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, Elvis, Dolly Parton, Nat King Cole, Dame Shirley Bassey, Ella Fitzgerald, Roberta Flack, Joni Mitchell, Sammy Davis Jr., Lena Horne, Barbara Streisand, and Cher. That's quite a list. She will soon add to her three-CD catalog, including the Mac Award-winning Human Heart, with a brand new album on Club 44 Records. Her CDs are currently available on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and her website, nataliedouglas.com. In addition, Douglas has made her mark as a much sought-after educator and actor. She's an expert instructor for the Jim and Elizabeth Sullivan Foundation, the Eugene O'Neill Cabaret and Performance Conference, and the Mabel Mercer Foundation, where she has been named Education Director. Currently, she can be seen in the award-winning documentary Sloan, a jazz singer, celebrating another one of her heroes, the late great Carol Sloan, in domestic and international film festivals. Natalie holds a bachelor's degree from USC in psychology, theater, and women's studies, and a master's degree from UCLA in psychology and theater. Now, let's go between her bio. I think it's really important for you to figure out yourself. And that's what cabaret does as opposed to acting in a, in a role in a musical theater piece. You know, you're not yourself. You're a version of yourself, but you're someone else. Yes. All of that person's circumstances, not your circumstances. You know, but in a cabaret space and in a cabaret stage, 
And, you know, I try to bring the same thing to concert work when I do like symphonies and bigger mm-hmm. halls with the same kind of expression. It's me. Yes. You know, it's a version of me that's interesting. It's not me on the couch watching all the episodes of Bones. You know, oh. Less interesting for people, you know, yes. starting rewatching Doctor Who from beginning to oh, end. Yes. I love it, but that yes. would not be fun for people to that's watch. That's not on the stage. Yes. <laughs> right. So it's not that me, but it is me. Great. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, I want people to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I just encourage people to think of all of the possibilities of who I am and to think about if the, what you think you're presenting is what's actually coming across because sometimes those are not the same thing at all. Absolutely. Do you watch yourself in order to kind of come to those conclusions? Do you encourage your students to do that? How do you encourage them to understand what the audience is seeing of them? Well, honestly, I encourage them to see a lot of shows. I mean, some people benefit from seeing themselves on screen. Some people get so wrapped up in like the picture, Mm -hmm. you know, that they start worrying about like the face they make. That's true. Mm -hmm. You know, and it becomes weird so i so i think again you have to know yourself you have to know like will that make me self-conscious will i start thinking oh my god i did that weird thing with my mouth you know which is the death of authenticity and of your story right your story dies on the stage the minute you become self-conscious yep yeah. and I, I have always said there are two things you can't really be on stage i mean you can do anything uh one thing you have to do is be honest you have to yes you cannot yes. lie to me. if you lie to me i will know and I will That's so true. So you can lose an audience like that yeah. if we know you're lying. But we always think we can trick them, that we can fool them. And no, the audience is smart. They can see it. They can smell it. Yeah. And even if you have a few people in your audience who've never been to a show before, have never seen anything like this, some of your audience has seen a show before. Mm-hmm. And so they know. You know, there's, it happens a lot here in New York that people, when they do their first show, they do a version of uh, Elaine Stritch or B. B. <laughs> like yeah. You know, this is my life in, in the theater. You know, but, but because they have just moved to New York and they're 24, their life in the theater is, you know, high school productions of Gypsy. And which is nothing wrong with that. But it's like, <laughs> it's, it's a start. It's, yeah. it's a start. That story is not necessarily unique. It might be. There might be something about your high school's production of Gypsy when you were, you know, <laughs> Tennessee Tuxedo or whatever that character. You know, like you, when you play that role, that that was that makes that story hysterical and wonderful and tells us something about you. But but a lot of times those stories are similar, you know. So when you stand on stage and you start to tell one of those stories about, you know, I moved to New York and I, you know, I, I can't, talk, I've heard this joke at least a thousand times. I moved to New York and I got a job on Broadway at the Starbucks on Broadway and 43rd. Oh Lord. You know, like, yeah. get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that joke coming from like six miles away Absolutely. and it's not funny. Yeah. And I bet there is a funny story if you actually are a barista at that, because that is the <laughs> true. Starbucks that used to be open 24 hours. It, now yes. it's post COVID, it's only open till midnight. That's right. Yes, I discovered that. Hours. But you have stories <laughs> if you actually tell me one of those. 
stories around that too. We doubt that our experience is interesting enough, but it is, it is. There are so many little nuggets within everything that we see from our lens. It's really, really interesting. And it doesn't matter what your life has been. You may think like, oh, well, I I don't have a story that's that exciting. I don't, you know, nothing ever happened to me. That's not true. That's right. That absolutely is not true. Everyone has something. Because something has happened in your life. You're here. You know? Yes. Yes. So, absolutely. So something has happened, you know, and and it may not be super dramatic, mm-hmm. but if it's truthful and it it's mm-hmm. something you want to share with an audience, it's worth saying. You know, I, there was a guy oh, yeah. I teach every summer up at the O'Neill, the, um, mm-hmm. the cabaret conference, which is wonderful. Ooh, and yes. for the first time we were back live after COVID was. Uh, August of 2021. And there was a great one of the fellows that year who told the cutest story about the dog that he and his husband adopted their COVID puppy. And it, like, it wasn't nothing, there, nothing, nobody died. There were no, you know, there were no murders. There were no <laughs> cataclysmic. Yeah. Right. It wasn't, it was just lovely. And it told us so much about him and his husband, who, you know, none of us knew because we were all up there in Connecticut and he was actually from the South. It told us so much about him telling that little story and then going into a song, which didn't have anything to do with that story, was a perfect little cabaret moment. It's like, tell us who you are. Share something of yourself with us. Yes. We, that's, you know, I think we're all looking for connection. I think that's why we do what we do. If we didn't have the show off gene, no, we wouldn't do it, you know, but I don't think that's the only reason we do it. I don't think it's just, you know, ha, come look at me. I think Mm -hmm. it's, I think we're looking for connection. I think we want, and there's there's a sense of being on that stage. I'm sorry to interrupt. There's a sense of being on the stage when it is look at me and the eyes are on you. That's very isolating. You do feel alone in that moment. Even if you're surrounded by thousands of people, it feels very isolating, insular in that moment. But when you're connecting with someone else off of the stage or even on the stage too, that changes the dynamics of the presentation and of your experience in general. 100%. And I, I think... You know, what you learn through doing, the other thing I always tell students is like sing everywhere you can, say yes to everything for a while. The beginning of your career, um, say yes to everything. Do every, because sometimes what you learn from a job is, oh, I never want to work with these people ever again. But <laughs> yes, but, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't do that. That's you know? exactly right. And, and, and it is a lesson in like living up to your commitments. Mm-hmm. Because when you say yes, you still have to give a hundred percent. Even once you get there and realize, oh my Absolutely god, I hate it. right. Yes. I hate I hate everything about this. I hate I hate all these people. I, <laughs> I, I, I hate what I'm wearing. You know, like you still have to give an audience a show like you don't hate any of that. So you question know. for you in that regard too is when you're in those moments where you know I do not want to be here, I do not want to do this, this is not what I signed up for or what was in my thought pattern when I signed up for this. Um, how do you separate the things that you can and you can't control in the moment and still make it an enjoyable experience for you and for your audience? Because this is something really hard for performers. It can be. Yeah, it really can be. I, For me, I immediately have a little like come to Jesus moment in my head. And the, the mantra is, are you a singer or not? That's good. Because if I'm not a singer, 
<laughs> then I can get distracted by the fact that, you know, oh, this, this costume itches. I hate it. Why? You know, and I they, they didn't have the right water in my dressing room, you know, like, whatever is uh, making me unhappy, you know? I mean, I, I, I remember many years ago showing up at what was supposed to be, I mean, was billed as a gig at an outdoor casino. And, and it was kind of, but the dressing room was literally a broom closet and the brooms were still in it. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> and the mirror that I was supposed to use was a broken piece of mirror. Um, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So yes, yes. If I think about that, I will be unhappy and I will be, you know, worried and, and concerned, like, how does the face look? I had to put it on sideways, you know? Yes. But if I think about the fact that I'm a singer and my job is to communicate with the audience, then I will communicate with the audience, even if there are six of them there. That's my job. Yes. It it is not my job only to communicate with them when it is a sold out house. Oh, you know. yes, 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 yes. And it is not my job to keep commenting on the fact that, oh, well, we're small but mighty, but they, they know they can count. They're in a room. They know how many pe- other people are in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to, I, I don't know why we do that. I don't know what yeah. compels us to feel the need to acknowledge, you know, and I'm like, you still have to do the show or, yeah. or cancel it. But like, those are your options. You know what I mean? You To, to kind of halfway do it. That's not okay. So for me, it's always about just taking that second to go, okay, these are the circumstances. These are the ones that I just have to put aside because I can't dwell on those. These are the ones that are useful. These are useful circumstances. I can, oh, this is helpful to me, you know? Yes. And and those are the ones I concentrate on. And I just put the others out of my head to the best of my ability. Sometimes it means, you know, that you go, you step away during the time between tech and, and curtain and cry. You know, <laughs> Sometimes it's like, Oh, so, uh, you know, there are times I've done, gigs, I've done reviews where I felt really alone, mm-hmm. you know, for one reason or another, the, the people that the rest of the cast didn't feel, I didn't feel, a part of them, you know, they, I didn't feel welcomed by them or I, I didn't feel like valued by them. Um, and that might've been in my head, that might've been something they were doing, you know, who knows. Yeah. But, but there are times that I have been on stage with other people doing that kind of show and felt very alone. And so I have to go like have a little, you know, weepy feeling sorry for myself over there, not out here. Yes. Because absolutely. I don't, I think that's, I think that is as much a turn off. You know, getting on stage and don't you feel bad for me and my circumstances is as much a turnoff as like, aren't I awesome? Don't you love me? You know, I an audience has already paid to get in. Their job is done now. They're not your therapist. You know, <laughs> if, if you're working something out that you should have worked out in therapy, then you owe all of them money. Therapist get paid. Okay. So if I'm in your house and you're making me figure out your junk, you know, so I think it's, I I think we, you can sometimes find something. You can have an epiphany on stage about your life that is useful to you, but that can't be the goal. You know, you can't go out there to work out something. That's exactly. Uh, I remember when my dad died and, and I had, my mother died a few years before that, like four years before that. And then two years after my mother died, I found out I was adopted. And like, yes. I'd never known that before. And then wow, my father really? could never talk about it. Yeah. And then my father died two years later. And the cat I had had for 20 years died in, in like two days before dad. 
So I was, it was particularly difficult. And my husband and I ran into a dear friend of, of ours, uh, who's been a friend of his from his acting days. And we hadn't seen her in some time because she moved to Texas uh, and she was just in New York doing some gigs. And she, you know, took my hand. She knew a lot of what I've been going through. And just as a friend said, um, are you okay? You know, I've been thinking about you. Are you okay? And I really opened my mouth to say, oh yeah, I'm fine. But what actually came out, I swear to God, what came out of my mouth was only on stage. And I heard it and I thought, that's true. I'm not okay. Uh, wow, that is interesting. Yeah. You know, so I realized that like I was, I was performing. Yes. Getting through the grief and sort of, I was performing that for myself, modeling it for myself on stage so that I would know how to do it in my life. That's when amazing. I got there. Yes, you know? yes, but, yes. But I didn't even realize I was doing that. But because I was determined not to make the audience go through what I was going through, you know, I was modeling myself having like assimilated all this information, having, having made, because I feel like that's what, at least for me, that's what grief is. It's it when it becomes a part of me and I'm no longer fighting it. It's still there, mm -hmm. but I'm no longer just wishing it wasn't. Yes. Then I can live my life again. I can, you know, it's not the biggest letting thing. Letting go. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that is the part of letting go that it's yeah. not just the, it's not just the phrase, you know, oh, just yeah. let go of it. It's a stopping the resistance is literally it. I had a therapist tell me once that grief uh, is like a blender and you just keep going round and round and it, it yeah. mashes in different ways and it, it becomes a different viscosity and there's just, it's always different. You know, That's it rises great. to the sides of the blender and then it goes down and sometimes it explodes. Sometimes it, it fully explodes when the lid yeah. is not on. That's exactly right. Well, well so yeah. this is, this is a segue to the story about how you found your birth father. I'd love to, I'd love for you to tell us about that. Cause it's. I, um, I, I've actually told this in shows. So I have a, a, a way of telling it because it's big and it's heavy. Mm -hmm. And like, you don't want to, you know, you can, you could, I could say like, you know, Hey, well, so when I was a kid, my parents lied to me about being their biological child. That wouldn't like, awkward you know like that would be making the audience worry about me that's and right we don't yes want yes yes, yes. it's a perfect example yes. yes yeah you know and and we don't want to worry about you because you're on stage and you have the microphone so like you know that that feels weird so so the way i tell it is that when my cousin after two years after my mother died my cousin came for a visit uh and i was filming a show of mine that I had done previously, but filming it in the venue um, for a PBS special. Mm -hmm. And she was sitting with my husband and I sang the Amanda McGroom song, The Portrait. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a beautiful song about a, a woman whose mother has passed. Oh, wow. And um, wow. so I had just sung that song. I talked about my mom a little bit and, and just sung that song. And when I finished, my cousin turned to my husband and said, Natalie, no, she's adopted, right? And my husband sort of went, what? No, what? What? No, what? There's a show going on. Uh, this, you know, so oh like he sat there, I'm sure with his brain exploding for the rest yeah, of the absolutely. show. And I knew none of this is going on. And then at the end of the show, he turned to her and said, okay, well, now you have to tell her. 
And she said, oh, well, if she doesn't know, I don't know if I want to be the one. And he said, no, 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 no. I am not keeping a secret like that from my wife. Like that is not, <laughs> we don't do that, you know? Yeah, and then I say, carry. this is, you know, and this is true because he's a good husband. He went outside and he called my therapist and then he called his therapist to make sure he was doing the right thing. <laughs> so New York. Another part of the New York story. That's amazing. And, and so the next night, actually two nights later, so he had to like, keep a lid on the, I don't even know how I did it. Yeah. Um, two nights later, we went to dinner and she said it to me over dessert, just like that. You know, you're adopted, right? Goodness. And I said, no, ma'am, because I was raised right. And <laughs> I left my body. I mean, I, I, I have a vision of like looking down at the table from yes. the seat, you know, just, what? what? Yeah. Yeah. Because oh. so, um, my mother had still told me stories about her pregnancy with me. No. My mother. The psychologist That's right. stories about her. So, so yeah, and it's funny because it's painful. Uh, I mean, oh, I understand. Yes, yeah. So, had, like, had she been pregnant? Do you mind me asking this? Had she been pregnant before? I don't know. She, I don't know. Okay, that's. I have no idea. She, um, where there's a told me she had. She told me she had been pregnant once before, mm-hmm. and had an ectop, 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 I can't say yes. it. Ectopic pregnancy so hard i agree <laughs> um, and so uh so that obviously uh was you know she miscarried that fetus okay. and um and then got pregnant and then the doctors told her she couldn't get pregnant again and she got pregnant with me and she just knew it mm-hmm. and she went to the doctors and told them i'm pregnant and they said no 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 you can't you can't get pregnant she's like no 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 i am so i was her miracle child that was the story i heard she also would never tell me how old she was when I was little and all the other kids, you know, would say on the playground, like, oh, my mom's 27 or whatever. Uh, I was like, you know, so wow. I, I I went home and I asked and she said, none of your business. But that was that generation, too, where yeah. it was yeah. it was a no, no to say. But I realized at that moment when, when my cousin told me this, I was like, oh, that's why she wouldn't tell me because wow. she was older than mm. my friend's mother. Certainly. I mean, I knew they were older, but I, you know, I thought she was in her 40s when they adopted me. And I think she was a lot closer to 50, if not 50. But anyway, so yeah. so she told me that. And then she told me as much information as she knew. She's, I think she's 11, 12 years older than I. So she remembered the big party my parents threw when uh, the adoption was final and the whole family was there. And her mother was actually my first cousin. Her mother her grandmother was my mother's older sister and my mother was the baby of her family. So my first cousins, many of them were 30 and 40 and 50 years older than I, when I showed up, my second cousins are older than I am. My third cousins are younger or the same age. Yes. Because my parents were so much younger. I mean, so much older when, when they adopted me versus when their siblings. They all kept the secret. Yes, that's how terrifying my mother was. Enough said. Because she never, what, what, I, what I got from them, once I started, you know, interrogating the rest of the family, yes. she never told them not to tell me. She never had to say it. They just no. knew. They just knew. They could wow. tell me. And uh, so I came home from that dinner and called one of my mother's, uh, one of our cousins, who was very close in age to my mother. And in some ways was like a baby sister to her. Although I, they, that was not the connection. I can't remember exactly what the connection, the cousin twice removed, that kind of nonsense. And she was, I'd say she was probably 
30 years older than I. So I I called her and I said, Norma Jean, hi. Madeline is, she's on the West Coast. So it's three hours earlier. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, midnight or two in the morning, but she's still up. I knew that. And so um, I said, Madeline came for a visit, you know. And she's like, oh, everyone's having fun. Yes, we're having a great time. What are you doing? And I said, well, she came to see me tape a show the other day. And, and then tonight we went to dinner. Norma, am I adopted? No. Oh, wow. Deafening silence. And in that silence, and like my stomach dropped because it wasn't that I didn't believe Madeline when she told me I absolutely did. But I, but like hearing it again, somehow I was like, Oh no, that wow. And, and that everyone knew. You know, and and so her first response was, oh, but your mother didn't want you to know. And I'm like, first of all, she's dead. I had been through my appendix burst many years ago. Mm -hmm. I've been through major abdominal surgeries since because my I pop hernias very easily obstructions. So Mm -hmm. I had been through about seven years of surgeries with the wrong medical information. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And because I was telling them what I knew mm-hmm. about my adoptive family because that's my family. You know, and that still is right. my family. But yeah, like, yeah. that's not my biological family, you know? But yeah, the medical history part is so imperative. So, so you know, so I said, I have, a, and she goes, oh, you're right, you're right. And so then she said, would you like to see your adoption papers? Like, how in the world does she have a copy of the adoption papers? She says, well, I was just at on Ethel's house and this is my, my godfather, my godmother, my godfather had since passed. And she said, "There, I think they have a wing or something. Or they have some papers dedicated to him at UCLA because that's where he went to law school before he became a lawyer, a councilman, a judge, a, a, the mayor of Los Angeles. So she had been at his home with his widow going through all the papers, taking out things that had like historical significance and taking out personal papers. And she said, Tom was the lawyer on your case. He was the lawyer on your adoption. So your adoption papers were in his files. I had them in my hands two weeks ago. And I was just like, yes, please. So she put them in the mail to me. And, you know, shortly after I opened an envelope and there it is, a a name that is not my name and very little information because California is a closed adoption state. But, um, you know, there it was. And I, and I suddenly knew it to be true. And then there were certain things that made sense and certain things that I was such a goody two shoes. I was such a, you know, like darling little angel who never got into any kind of trouble. I ditched class once to go to McDonald's <laughs> as a senior <laughs> and we got caught. So like, I mean, oh, I, never I, again. <laughs> I was, you know, and I went to girl's school. Like what was I going to, you know, but my mother was always like, stealing my diary and reading my diary or listening in on my phone call. And I, and I always thought, why are you so suspicious? I don't do anything, you know? And I realized that it was because she was afraid. I knew she was afraid someone had told me and, and what she, she was trying to find out because she was so afraid that I hate her for, for, you know, lying to me about it. And, and it actually broke my heart when I realized that because I was mad, you know, but I, I learned a long time ago um, in therapy that I could be angry with my parents. You know? um, so I wouldn't have stopped loving her. You know, I haven't stopped loving her still. Um, so so that made me sad that she didn't have faith in that. 
But, you know, she was orphaned by the time she was five. And she mm. was raised by her older sister, who married at the age of 13. Oh, wow. A very different time. Yes. And, and I think she maybe didn't feel like she belonged in that mm. family. And so I think at least part of it was she wanted me to feel like I belonged. You know, yes. this, but the yeah. previous experiences inform parenting. Absolutely. Yes. Well, so much of uh, so many choices parents make. I have seen in my life are they're just doing the opposite. They're giving what they didn't get or they're not giving something that they got and they didn't want, you know, they're just doing the opposite, you know, and, and depending on the kid you get, that might be great, you know, but, but you might get a kid for whom that those things are not useful, you know, because you're reacting to your childhood, not your kid's childhood, you know, but so, and I, I mean, I remember when I first went into therapy, still in Los Angeles, 19 years old, 20 years old, having to find a therapist who didn't know my mother. Mm. Cutting a swath through the list <laughs> of psychologists because I would go in for the intake interview, yes. you know, and say, well, my mother is Dr. Eugenia Douglas. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. yes, she is. <laughs> Unless you live with her. I, she was wonderful. But, you know, I, I my my first therapist was the first person who said, I'm sorry, I don't I don't know that name. I'm like, yes, you're hired. Just because she didn't have preconceived notions of who okay. she was. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a very powerful, very intelligent, very popular woman, mm-hmm. uh, very accomplished. She was a, one of the founding members of the National Council of Negro Women in Los Angeles. Wow. She was one of the founding members of her chapter of I can't remember what the acronym was, a university, American university women, like women who taught professorial, you know, women. And she was, you know, and they did, they were very sort of high society. They went to, you know, parties and balls and like, she was someone who was well-known and well-admired and well-liked, you know, which she earned. She was, you know, but she was also kind of a crazy person. And I needed someone to not, not believe me. You know, yes. I spent a lot of my childhood wishing I wasn't an only child, mainly so that I could turn to somebody and go, they're making that up. Right. We, we never did that, you know, because my parents were great storytellers. They weren't necessarily truthful, you know, yes. but they were fun and they were delightful and fun to listen to. So I went for a long stretch of having no more information than that. Um, I got in touch with the Children's Society, Children's Aid Society of Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which no longer exists, but the records still exist. And there's kind of a a clearinghouse for people who went through it. But they didn't have information about sort of everything was a dead end for finding biological parents. And my the woman I knew as my babysitter um, when I was little came out here after she found out I found out. And she flew out here and told me what she knew. Um, because I was with her family before I was with my mother. Her grandmother took in babies for the Children's Aid Society, like sort of immediately out of the hospital and then before they were transferred to their adoptive parents. That's kind of, um, and she remembered me because I was older. My biological mother tried to keep me for a month. So I was older when I was relinquished. I wasn't just a few days old and I was with them longer because um, it was harder to place me or whatever. And my mother was, my adoptive mother was her teacher at the school down the street. And she came down to the house to say something to Gail's grandmother, the woman I knew as my nanny, 
about Gail, you know, acting up or not doing her homework or something. You know, she had to talk to a, a parent teacher meeting, you know, oh, yes. and she saw me and said, I have to have that baby. And so she and my dad went to Children's Aid Society and described me as though they hadn't seen me. You know, oh, we'd like a baby that looks like this, you know, and and maybe about this old. And, and I, I was a redhead when I was a kid. Um, when I was really little. And, you know, and like, I know this sounds weird, but do you have any Negro babies that have red hair? <laughs> and wow. I'm sure the social worker is sitting across the table. Like, oh, my God. Yes. Ding, you know, ding, ding, um, ding. Yeah. yeah. So so um, they adopted me. And then um, because my mother was still teaching and, and she went back to college, they would drop me off at Mrs. Jennings house. And that was my nanny because I was a block away and she'd come down and have lunch with us. And, you know, and that's what I did before I went to preschool. So I, Gail told me what she knew about from her point of view. And then I realized that, you know, this woman I knew as my babysitter in my childhood, and they were like family, they were, you know, I adored them, um, was actually my foster sister. And I was with her family before I was with my parents. And then now, five years ago, um, my husband and I did uh, Ancestry.com sale, two for one. Mm. I love the sale. That was, that's something I learned from my mother. My, my adopted mother was a fantastic shopper. Yeah, she was quite the close horse, and uh, and I inherited that from her. Um, so I we did two for one mm-hmm. and uh, sent off our saliva, mm-hmm. and uh, his came back first, which really pissed me off, and I completely <gasps> checked to white privilege. <laughs> Were his results interesting at all? Were you? Well, no, because he had always heard stories about there being Native American, you know, blood in his family. Or, every or white person say that black blood. Yeah. Like, so, No, his his ancestry, like his 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 wheel is uh, French. English, French, English, French, English, French. That's it. But so he was definitely just white. (laughs) But mine came back maybe a week later. Mm -hmm. And on that second page, after the first page, which does your, you know, breakdown of which genetic group from which you hail. That's right. um, The next page are matches with anyone who has also Mm -hmm. submitted their ancestry saliva and agreed to be matched and they list them in order of proximity and across the top of the page it said this is your father and i was not i i thought i might find siblings oh my goodness i i expected to find cousins yes um but i certainly didn't expect that and he used his first and last name for his handle so i googled him wow and found some email addresses. So I first wrote him through Ancestry because there's a way to reach out to people Mm -hmm. you match. But um, he thought, he didn't really look at it when it came in. He thought it was just Ancestry spam, like trying to sell you something. So he didn't really open it. Um, And I knew he hadn't opened it because at that time you could see whether someone had read your letter or not. I don't think you can do that anymore. So I found these email addresses and I wrote him to sort of all the email addresses that would go through. I wrote a letter and my vocal coach whom I adore and who is brilliant and has rescued me a million times. When I first, whenever I sit down with her for a session, she has me talk because she wants to hear what's happening health wise. Mm. She'll ask me to talk about something. And I, I had a session with her and I just sent these emails off. So I was telling her about this and she said, have you heard him talk? And I said, no. 
She said, because it's all over YouTube. And she turns the laptop around because she's been typing the whole time I'm talking. She takes notes while I. Oh, my goodness. She's also Googling the name. Wow. And she's he's all over YouTube here. And she plays him speaking. And as soon as he starts talking, she says, oh, that is definitely your father. You have the same vocal track. It's just like. No. So I, yeah, it was wild. Totally. That's a whole study. That would be an amazing study. I'm sure some some scientist somewhere has already done a study on familial vocal tracks and genetics and things like that. It's just fascinating to me. Oh, well, we finally met him. I mean, so, so, so I haven't gotten any answers yet. Mm -hmm. We go to Los Angeles because we're gigging in LA and and up north. Uh, I think Los Gatos, I don't remember where the gig was, but Northern California. So we're doing uh, San Diego, I think LA and, and Northern California that trip. And I the night before the LA concert, I found another email address and I sent the letter off again. And so the next day we get up and we go out to Vitello's, find signs at Vitello's, which- Yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and we're there for the tech and between tech and the show, I go in the dressing room and I start putting my face on and I look at my phone, you know, and I'm reading emails and there's a reply and I start reading and discover that he had no idea I existed. I was the product of a high school romance and he never saw that girlfriend again after graduation. Oh my goodness. So, and I was born in January. So he didn't know that he had a daughter. And he, but he, um, you know, knew my, my birth, yeah, my birth last name was the last name of his girlfriend. So, and she had remembered and she had recalled and that's what was on the birth certificate. Yeah, that's what she, yeah, yeah. She, she named me, apparently she named me for one of her friends from high school because he knew the girl that I was named for. It's, I don't, yeah, I don't tell people what it is because it's mm, so not, I'm Natalie Douglas. Yes, like that. Yes, this yeah, is, this yeah. name is like, not me, not, mm-hmm. not, not who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the last name is fun. It's Potts. I love that. Oh, one. It's, so, um, so yeah, so, so he said, you know, this is, uh, I'm gobsmacked and I'm overwhelmed, but I'm delighted. And he also wrote, it was so kind. He wrote, you know, I know that, Composing that letter and hitting send mm-hmm. took a lot of courage. And just so you know, that is also a family trait. Oh. Which it, you know, so I started crying as I'm trying to put makeup on. And he starts describing his mother to me oh, wow. and saying that I am the spitting image of her, that I favor her. Had he in- Googled you? Had he figured yeah. that he had been? Yeah, well, I sent a link to my website. Okay. Uh, in the email. And then he had Googled me and he actually, he told me after we, we met that he sent the YouTube links, my YouTube channel mm-hmm. to his friends to listen to me sing first. Cause he said, you know, I'm going to love her no matter what she says, <laughs> but you guys tell me if it's really good or not. That's so, funny. Um, so he, was he already had the bias. He already had the dad bias. Yeah. He was already prepared <laughs> to love it no matter what I sounded. That's right. So he actually had his friends listen to me first. Really cute. That's great. Uh, but yeah, so so then we talked on the phone. I, I actually, I was flying back to New York the very next morning. I had a gig that evening in New York. So I got off the plane and went to the theater. Like I was, you know, didn't. Yep. I like it. Yep. So uh, we didn't talk until the next day. 
And we got on the phone and we talked for a couple hours. And, and he, you know, he had told me he was a minister. So I, when I wrote him or I, I found out he was a minister, I guess, when I wrote him, I did write to let him know who I was politically. Cause I didn't know if minister in his case meant a kind of conservatism that wouldn't be welcoming to the sort of things I believe, you know, <sighs> and I wanted to be clear about who I was yes. up front in case that was someone he didn't want in his life or, you know. So I told him I was, you know, a queer positive, sex positive radical, basically. <laughs> and um, and he wrote back that he was a community activist. Oh, and wow. that, you know, as far as he was concerned, people who don't realize that Jesus was a revolutionary are reading it wrong. You know, and I was like, oh, we're going to get along. Yes. So, so, so we, we started talking and we just hit it off famously. He sent me a picture of his mother. And for the first time in my life, I looked into someone's face. Look up, and it was mine. I mean, it was it was amazing. And he uh, actually was not raised by his biological dad. His mother was um, pregnant before she married his dad. And they lost touch. They, he was a neighbor, I think, when they grew where his mother grew up. They grew up together, these two kids, and they were never like really superly romantically interested. They were just experimenting, and and that produced him. Um, and then his mother married his father, the man who raised him. So he had a similar experience where he met his biological dad. He met him a couple times when he was younger, but he really got to know him when he was older too when he was in his 40s and 50s when he got to know his biological wow. dad so um Did we impart wisdom from that were there things yeah. that he learned from that experience that he imparted well um only not you know just we we have been astounded at how many things we have in common wow. how because we literally did not know about each other mm -hmm. so he grew up fewer than 10 minutes away from the house I grew up in. But by the time I was little and like kind of, you know, tooling around, he had moved to San Francisco. So he was in Northern California then. But but we, you know, we have so much in common. We, we our, our values are very, very similar. Wow. We are activists in much the same way. Mm -hmm. And um, we talk about what we believe in, in very similar ways. And we also, because he's a minister, we've heard him give some sermons and yes. sadly a couple of eulogies and you know and when one of the things he told me when we first spoke on the phone was that he only ever had another biological child he had another daughter my sister rachel who was younger than i a uh, much younger um he never married her mother they were good friends mm -hmm. and but they co-parented her and he knew her all of her life and she died nine months before we met the the san francisco chronicle article about this story it it's something where you just have to have wads of kleenex there ready I, as you're reading the story i mean when i read that i thought oh my goodness the twists and turns of this first of all are completely remarkable but that aspect yeah well it's like you know and and it's that it like he was born to be a girl dad like that yeah you know, and and it's, you know, it, it, and we've talked about it many times since I, you know, I'm so sad I didn't know her having a baby sister. That would have been amazing. 
Um, and and he said, you know, that he would have loved it too. She would have loved coming to New York, though he mm-hmm. doesn't love the idea of the two of us ganging up on him, which we certainly yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but you know, it's I, I don't in any way replace her. Yes, because she was this magnificent, you know, human being, and I've met so many people who loved her um, that I've gotten a sense of who she was without having met her. So it's this odd thing where I miss someone I, I never knew, That's you know, right. but the yeah. Natalie shaped piece of his heart. Yeah. What's not, that was not the Rachel piece. The Rachel yeah. piece is there too in his heart, but yeah. then there was this Natalie piece and now his, his heart is whole. And just thinking yeah. of that, Oh, Natalie. <laughs> it's so wild. You know, and he says it's, um, there's a, a, a story that ministers tell. It's like a, you know, a homily that, that comes up in sermons about a kid watching a, staring at a painting of a chess game or something. Mm. And everyone is wondering why this kid keeps staring at this game, uh, this painting, you know, and I guess the painting is called checkmate or something like the game is over or something like that. And, and the kid says, no, no, I keep looking at it because he doesn't realize he has another move. He still has one more move. And he said that, you know, ministers tell that story to say, God always has another move. When you think, that you know the story when you think you know, you know, and whatever someone mm. personally believes, you know, I know different people have different yeah. belief systems, but I, what I learned from the experience of being told I was adopted when I thought I was a biological child of the people who raised me is that you, whatever it is you think you know, you don't know. You know, you really don't know. You only know what you know now. That's all you know. You know what you know now, but the universe is full of so many possibilities that that something you think you are absolutely certain of to your very bones might not be true. It might not be. So, you know, being open to the possibility is just makes sense because you don't know what life has, you know? And I remember I was very, I was in a place in my life because we had got, we got married that year. So 20. Wow. Oh my goodness. I was in a place where I was kind of like, I, I'd always wanted to be 30. That was my, when I was a little girl, like 30 was the, like I wanted, yeah, I, love that. I, yeah. I was born for 30 basically. But I couldn't <laughs> wait until, you know, my age matched me, you know? And so, so like when I got there, I thought, yeah, now I got, I got it. I, yeah. I know things make sense. I'm clear about, you know, and, and I, and I, I really had a few moments in my life, in my head of walking around. I remember one time it was walking through Central Park and just feeling like, you know what? I've got this grown up thing figured out, you know, thanks world, you know, for helping me sort through my twenties. Oh, that was a mess, you know, and, and now I've got it figured out. And boom, <laughs> and then, right? Yeah. <laughs> and one of my, my best friend, who's also my music director, one of my music directors, um, is adopted, but he, he always knew it. And so he was the first person I told other than my husband. And, um, and he said, you know, it changes everything. It changes nothing. Mm. My family's still my family. My childhood is still my childhood. My parents are still my parents. They, they are not replaced. They are not supplanted. They are not strangers, you know, but, but it changes everything too, because there's this whole other family that I'm a part of. Yes. And I see it in them. When I see that, 
you know, we went to um, one of the aunts, the great aunts that I never met uh, past a few, I guess it was September two years ago. And my dad came down from San Francisco to do the eulogy in LA. And I flew in because I said, would it be easier for you if, if I was there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I went to the funeral and as we were gathering sort of to walk in as a family, some of the cousins I had met uh, online during lockdown, I met a lot of them. Oh, perfect. Yeah, we met, we met, um, <laughs> yeah. chit but, um, but some of them I had not met at all, you know, and, and so a, a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of women turned and looked my way and I saw like a whole lot of people with green eyes and hazel eyes looking at, and I was just kind of like, oh my God, this is wild. And as I walked up, one of the cousins said, here comes Thelma, because that was my grandmother's name. And I look, apparently I look so much like her and I, and I, uh, my gestures are like her and I speak like her that, that for a lot of them who knew her really well, I guess a lot of them would stay with her during the summer. So a lot of them grew up with her that, that it's like, an apparition has appeared yes. before them, mm-hmm. you know. So, so that's really wild. That and- is amazing. This is this is a story that needs to be featured on Finding Your Roots. I mean, you're you would go into Finding Your Roots with this subset, this foundational subset, and then to have Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is my celebrity crush, by the way. I mm. love this man more than I can say. I don't you love him, but. You go. You would go in with this foundation, and then he would take it into all of these amazing. What is it? Tentacles would would happen yeah. to these. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about her is that she actually did work at Ten Pan Alley. Like she she worked in those buildings with the guys who were working in those buildings. So, like, I I wonder what her daily life was like showing up. And, you know, she was obviously a black woman. She It's not that she passed. You know, she looked like a black woman. And they all knew it. And they also knew that she was publishing things under her, not her own name. Um, so what was that like? Like, did they go have lunch and chit chat about that? Or, you know, or did somebody say, oh, my God, I love the new song, Irene, you know, Gershwin, like, you know, great song, Irene. Um, shame you can't put your name on it. Like, I just, I wonder what the vibe was about that. Cause that, cause that wasn't the reality for them. I mean, some of them had changed their very Jewish sounding names to something more Americanized, but they didn't have to pretend to be a whole other person. Yes. You know, they were still men. They Absolutely. didn't have to pretend they were another gender. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to be invisible. They could show up somewhere and say, yes, my name is Irving Berlin. That wasn't the name I was born with, but that's my name. You know? um, yes. So so they they didn't, you know, so I'm, I, I, I think about that a lot. I, I, I don't know why, but I just think about like what her daily reality must have been like in that space. Um, but in terms of the material, I think and, you know, this is merely my opinion, but I think there is a particular poetry in black voices in America because of our story in America. And so when I hear the way that the phrases of good morning heartache sit, Mm -hmm. you know, I hear something in that, that to me sounds 
like a black woman's experience. You know, Ooh. it sounds it sounds like something I can touch, I can tap into. Um, I am a big believer that we are collectively the living embodiment of our histories. You know, that, that yes, obviously you share traits with your relative, you know, you have your uncle John's laugh, you know, or like there are certain things that are in your immediate family or your slightly extended family. But I believe that we carry things from, you know, 300 years ago experiences that the people who gave birth to the people who gave birth to the people who gave birth to the people that gave birth to us had. So I think there are things in what she wrote that feel viscerally true to me. Um, and I feel that way whenever I sing poetry by black artists, you know, I, I remember when I first heard street scene, mm. And I knew I knew Kurt Bow because my parents were big Bow fans, mm-hmm. um, and I and I knew some of the the um, Knickerbocker, Knickerbocker Holiday. Mm-hmm. You know, they had that album. I knew those songs, but when I heard Lonely House, I knew that the lyricist was black. I didn't oh. know it was like some cues right away, but I knew that that you know even stray dogs find a friend. That specific mm-hmm. turn of phrase that is a black person's experience in this country like that. Wow. So I, I think there are certain things that she wrote and I don't think she was trying to write black, you know, she was just writing what she was writing human writing her experience. Um, but there are certain turns of phrase that, that just kind of reach me mm. in a place uh, and the last thing I do before I sing anytime mm-hmm. is is sort of connect with the ancestors. Like that's the that's my little, you know, before my foot hits the stage moment. Because um, there are plenty of times I'm not alone, you know, backstage um, in the dressing room. You know, we we show up places and there's one dressing room for everybody, mm-hmm. and, right. and we have to all get comfortable looking at each other's underwear. Like get used to it, you know. So so I'm not always alone, like in the prep time beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found ways to to have my little space if I need it. Um, but in that moment, right before you step on stage, usually alone then. You know, that's and so. That's a moment where I just check in with what the legacy I carry. Yes. You know, I just I I step out there for them. Absolutely. You know, for, for because I I'm very aware that a lot of the people I come from didn't even own themselves. That's right the only thing they could possibly own were their stories. Mm-hmm. So telling stories, sharing, you know, experiences with a room full of people is fulfilling their promise, their, their existence. You know, that's what, that's, that's how they lived. That's how they made their mark, you know? Um, so it is carrying on that tradition 
it is it's my birthright and as as we're talking about this so many things oh gosh you have just it's been a tsunami of beautiful beautiful things from you this conversation but <laughs> you have now i believe it's either just come out or it is going to come out this album with Club 44. So how is this different than how is this album and the album experience different than from your love of being live in front of an audience? What was the process like? And what can you tell us about this album? Because we, we're all going to want to go out and buy it so <laughs> immediately. The album drops in February. Okay. Single, the first single drops uh, at the end of September. Okay. So, um, and I think we're going to get a second single out before the end of the year. Fingers are crossed. We might. Yes. Oh, great. great. Um, but I'm so excited. Um, it's really funny because Wayne is one of those people, my producer, Wayne Hahn, one of those people that I met at Cast Party. Oh, I believe um, it. Yes. yes. Okay. But he knew me already. I didn't know him. He had found my album at Colony Records. That's how long ago it was. My second album, which was self-produced. It's a live recording of my Nina show at Birdland. The first time I did I think he... Well, I know I, we released it in 2005, 2006. So I don't know exactly when he found it, but he found it and he had become a fan. God bless him. And he's friends with Jim Caruso, who, mm-hmm. you know, is the impresario yes. on Monday nights at cast party. <laughs> and so he saw me talking to Jim and went to Jim and said, oh, my God, can you introduce me to Natalie? Duck? I love her. I want to, you know. And Jim came over and said, um, Wayne wants to meet you. And I was like, oh, okay. you know, yeah. and he said, He's a record producer. And I said, okay. And he goes, no, he's He's a fantastic record And I said, no, Natalie, he's, um, and I was like, okay, I believe you. I under, I understand, I hear what you're saying. Because you, <laughs> you know, we meet people all the time mm-hmm. who are like, I'm a manager, I'm a record yeah. producer, I'm making a star, I'm a, you know, and, yep. you know, they don't necessarily yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. So he, he wanted me to know that this was somebody who really does this for a living. Mm-hmm. And he introduced us and we hit it off instantly. And, you know, he told me he was a big fan. Ah, what? You know, how do you, and he's like, I've got your album. I love it. And he said, I'd love to record you someday. And I said, oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. That's amazing. And thought nothing of it. And then a couple of years go by and the guys put Club 44 together. Yes. And their first release was the Christmas at Birdland album that Jim Caruso, Billy Stretch and Clea, Blackers, who are friends of mine. And so we went to the CD release party, uh, which was December of 2019. Oh, Little did we know what was my next. goodness. Yes. But um, so we're at the or maybe it was November, actually, because maybe it came out before December. And uh, and they said, you know, we want to record you. This is real. We're going to do this. And I was like. And he introduced me to the president of the, you know, and all the p- principals at the company. And I was kind of like, oh, re- really? Okay. Wow. You know, and then of course, lockdown, we, you know, time goes. So it was some time before we actually got back to the whole, you know, we're really doing this place, mm-hmm. but suddenly there was a contract and I was like, Oh my God, we're oh, really doing this, you know? And so we started work and it has been so delightful and so joyous and everyone with whom I've worked is wonderful. And it was funny. There are other people I know who are on the label, Linda Lavin. That's right. You know, and um, they've actually, Jane's been a friend for a while. And Linda, I've known a really long time because she's really good friends with Jim. I I, I adore her. I'm a huge fan. Um, and she's so kind. And 
I saw her, she was doing a, a play in December of last year here in New York. And I went to see the show and I waited after to say hi to her. And and she said, oh, Natalie, we were just talking about you. I had dinner with Wayne and we were just talking about you. Oh Weren't they amazing? You know, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Because I know it seems too good to be true, but they're really that nice. You know? <laughs> That's what you always want and you desire. And that also helps to produce this authentic product too yeah. that people really touch and, about. And you know, it's, That's cool. it's been fascinating because they're they're based in Nashville and they I I know them I, you know I've gotten to know Wayne pretty well over the last couple of years. Um and I know Joel a little bit. Um I know his husband from a long time ago. Um he's a classic yeah, the world is so tiny. So you know I know them a little I know them all but it's when they brought the song that Joel and Wayne wrote for me. The original <gasps> song. To oh, I was going to ask you what the mix was. Yes. It, I was knocked out because I was kind of like, how, how do you know me? You put me on a page. Like that's, that's wow. so um, And, you know, Wayne has come to see a bunch of my shows. And and th- Pete, this, like us talking like this, yes. this is me doing a show, except I stop sometimes to sing songs. Like this, yes, yes. This, is what it, this is what it is. I, I stand on stage and I talk and I talk about my life and I talk about what I think and I talk about what I believe and I talk about history because, you know, I, I started this tribute series where I, I have a tribute to Sammy Davis Jr. and Nina Simone and Linda Ronstadt yes. and Shirley Bassey and Roberta Flack and Cher and Barbara Streisand and Joni Mitchell and, you know, Stevie Wonder and Stevie Nicks. And, <laughs> and I do all this research. Yes. And distill it down so I can tell people the interesting stories, the, the stories that make them human, you know, the yes. stories that that tell you a little bit more about who they really are. And I love that stuff. And so I guess Wayne and Joel have gotten to know me a, a little bit from seeing me and hearing me. And then they wrote this song that was so me. I loved it instantly. It was, it's very baccarat Really? And, and it was interesting. He had just passed, like the second that they played it for me. And I was like, did you know? And they said, no, they started writing it before that. You know, it, it just, it's, it's, I love it. It's amazing. It makes me so happy. And, and the first song I ever learned, You'll Never Know, is on oh, it. Yeah. It's so amazing. And we were cracking it in Nashville. February. I was going to ask where you were recording. Yeah, we went down. I did recording in New York, or I did. We did a little okay. recording here. Um, well, one of the songs on it is um, the first time ever I saw your face, Ooh. which Ooh. I've been singing yeah. for about twenty okay. something years. Yeah. And my music director and best friend Mark Hartman created an arrangement of that song that is so spectacular that every time I sing it, and I sing it a lot, people ask me. If I've recorded it, okay. Well, what, can I buy that? You know. Oh and so for twenty years, twenty-two years, I've said not yet, <laughs> not yet. So, so that was one of the things I knew I I had to have on this album. It's time. You know? yes. This is my fourth <laughs> album. We have to finally get that one on it. Um, so, um, and because Mark plays that arrangement so beautifully, I really wanted him to play the thing he created and this thing that we created together over yes. all these, we worked together 25 years, 26 oh, years. Beautiful. Um, so that we recorded up here 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I redid the vocal in Nashville, but we recorded it live together. And then all the other things we tracked in Nashville in February. And then we went back last month in August and finished the vocals, did the final vocals, which was amazing. Um, you know, because Wayne and Leah, our engineer, have such a fabulous way of communicating, it all went so smoothly. We tracked 11 songs in about 12 hours. What? It was, it that's was unheard of. Crazy. That's, that's I, flow. That is the definition of flow. <laughs> I never happens. I couldn't believe wow. how. Yeah, we did five. The, we had booked three days and we did five the first day and we did five the second day. And we're like, well, I guess tomorrow we only have to come in for about two hours to get this last song. It was just, it was wild. You know, these, but are, it, these are songs that are in your voice. These are in your voice. I mean, some dead. of them were brand new. That, oh, um, wow. Wayne and I both share a love of Pearl Bailey. And um, had a particular affinity for this tune she recorded with the Charioteers, which is one of those, like in the the 40s especially, there were a lot of black male vocal groups Mm -hmm. who sang songs that were kind of hymn-like. One of them, they were the Golden Steps, the Golden Staircase. There were a bunch of them. There were a bunch of these bands. And they sang material that had like some reference to heaven, you know, some, and, and also they would sometimes record gospel things. Mm-hmm. But so she sang a version of who the Jerome Kern tune. Oh. With That's really adorable and really great. And, and he had always loved it. And he mentioned it to me and I was like, Oh my God. Yes. I love that. song. I never, I know that recording. I love that recording. I've never thought about singing that because it's, not a you know it's five voices yes 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 but but he was like do you think we could there's something and i was like i think there might be so you know we figured out a way to do it and we're going to add voices to it okay but that i never saw you know and um true colors i've always wanted to see oh i can't wait to hear that i love it so much and i love what it says and i love the way it's become an anthem for our community that needs it, you know, I don't, you know, if you follow me on any of the social medias, you know that, um, you know, what I am, I am, uh, I follow the meme that says, you know, nobody's trying to make your straight kids into queer kids. You know, what we're trying to do is keep queer kids from being dead kids. Like it's no one wants to change who anybody is. You know, we're straight kids, cis kids are great. They're awesome. We're happy they exist. We're happy they feel validated and they should feel validated. But we live in a world that validates them at the expense of kids who aren't that. And those kids need to feel like they belong to. Absolutely. Value. Absolutely. And the fact that they don't is heartbreaking. And as long as any of them are dying, we have a responsibility to change it. And so that song and the way in which it it says that you're beautiful the way that you are. And they are, you know, I'm really lucky. I live in New York and I work in New York. And even when I teach out of town, a lot of the kids that I get to work with do not identify as straight or cis, you know. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful kids, you know, and 
They're fascinating. They have stories to tell. They have, and they have ways of approaching music that are so interesting. You know, if you are a kid who, who was assigned a gender at birth that is not your own, when you start singing, especially in your teenage years, as things change or not. Oh, yes. Your voice is going to go through some things that you need some guidance on. Like, yes. absolutely. And you can't, it won't serve you to go to a teacher who doesn't celebrate who you actually are. Yeah. You know, and and I realized that a long time ago. I remember the first time Brian Nash, who's another one of my best mm-hmm. friends, music directors, and I worked together. We were teaching in Traverse City and there was a beautiful high school girl who was singing a love song. We were talking about how you kind of sing to the love object, but also you're singing to the people in the room, you know, that kind of thing. We were talking about that as an acting piece. And I realized as I was about to say, you know, the boy you love, I don't know her. I just met her today. I don't know who she loves. And I shouldn't, presume we live in such a heterocentric world that we we tend to just say you know and as i like as her teacher i i have a responsibility to make space for who she is not who i think she is and i don't know who she is so Mm. you know as i was saying i was like so for whoever it is you love you know and it was just easy to to say that as opposed to say, you know, it wasn't like some big, hard, oh, pronouns are hard. I can't remember. You know, it was just, it was just yeah. you know, taking, I don't know. She knows boy. It, that's fine. But I don't know. And why should I assume? Because my assumption might make her feel bad. Mm-hmm. If I assume she's straight, which people so often do. We assume that, you know, strangers. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that's not her reality. And maybe... My saying that might make her feel like how I feel isn't okay. I'm supposed to be that. And close her off from true, authentic performance, right? And I never want to be the person who says, you know, who you are isn't okay. I Mm -hmm. never want to be that, you know, and that's all it is for me. Like when people talk about, you know, oh, well, everything's so PC or I can't be woke. You know, it's like, no, just don't be an asshole to people. That's (laughs) what it is. you You don't have to carry, like, there's no badges. There's no, like, classes you have to take. It's just... How, how do you, how would you like to be spoken to? Would you like to be valued? Would you like someone to, to acknowledge your reality? Yeah. Well, everybody wants that. That's what yes. everyone wants. Everyone wants their reality to be validated. You know, That's exactly so, right. The human condition. That is the human condition to be yeah. loved, to be seen, to be heard, yes. to be valued. Oh mm-hmm. God. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is all we need. Mm-hmm. That is. And, and the saddest thing, I think that's happening to us right now is that so much of the anger and the hate and the taking, you know, the country, the laws, the whatever back comes from people who aren't being seen. That's absolutely right. And the thing is, but you're not going to be seen just because you, you try to take stuff away from somebody else, you know, like that, that, that doesn't help us see you. That's right. Because all I see is your anger. All I see is your hatred. Yes. Rather than your story and the truth about you. Yes. Yes. You know, so when you protest outside Disney wearing swastikas and waving Nazi flags, I don't see you. I know that's what you need. I know you need to be seen and heard, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I see the people we've already beat once. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. Yeah. Don't make me come out there again. I mean, that's like that's. Oh, Natalie, this is so important. It's so important to talk about this. It is so important to call it out, but it is especially important for us to hear this, to hear this reflected in in through your voice, both on stage and off. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you spending this time with me, with us at the Virtuosa Society. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for, for pouring out your insight and good golly, I can't wait to come and see you again. I know I'm, I'm so eager and so excited. Out again? You're coming out this way? I, I'm supposed to be coming out fairly soon. Hopefully I, I have okay. my New York based band is coming out to Oregon in February. So I am hoping to go out there to to do some more shows with them, hopefully in the spring. But I'm in that weird frame of life where I've got one who's who's leaving the nest to college in five days. And my that's my son. And then my daughter is a freshman in high school. And so we're at that just at a really weird transitional stage. And and exciting though. it is. It's so exciting. And talk about identity. I mean, it's it's I'm learning so much from them. And from the way that they want to be seen in the world. Well, I do love that so many of the young people I meet, like I said, I teach young people several times a year Mm. in Durango and Oklahoma, in New York, in Grand Cayman, even. Mm, We do an arts festival and teach down there. (laughs) I teach a lot of teens and and you know, like early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that I see so many of them are open to experiences that are not their own. Yes. You know, they're, 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 they will share their own with you, which is so generous, you know, because yes. they don't have to do that. That's right. But they are open to acknowledge that my experience isn't your experience. And Gosh, we can both yes. be in this room and be valued and valid, you know. Yes. And that's amazing because for Thank so you. long... You've grown up in a, a world where only certain experiences were considered valuable. That's right. You know, and everyone else, okay, that's your story, but we don't really need to hear that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's like I, I said to a friend of mine years ago when he was entering a, a um, playwriting contest mm-hmm. and and he happens to be um, a cis white man. But he was saying, you know, why do we have to put on the how we identify like yes. whether you know we're we're queer or whether we're trans or you know are racially and i said because for so long we have only listened to certain voices mm-hmm. we have only amplified certain voices mm-hmm. and in trying to correct that sometimes we need to say well wait a minute mm-hmm. we have seven of those voices that we've been hearing for the last 2000 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should add in yes. three of these voices that we haven't, you know, and he said, but if it was all colorblind, then no one would. And I'm like, but that wouldn't get us to equity. That's right. It would it, be it's about equal. widening. It's about widening, not narrowing. Right. Yes, 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 yes. You yes, know, yes, yes. and equality and equity are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yes, we can all, we can, there are certain situations where you can have everybody start from the same baseline, but that doesn't mean equity because how you got to that baseline, what, you know, what you bring to it. And, and, you know, if you are a cis white man who happens to be a playwright, mm-hmm. you have 2000 years of precedent 
of people listening to your voice. So listening to your voice is going to, it will be easy, but there is already a pipeline. Yes. Oh, that is you know? so, such what a we're powerful saying is visual. Take some more pipelines. That's yeah. We're not shutting yours down. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to not listen to you mm-hmm. at all. Because of course you have stories that matter, mm-hmm. but we want to listen to other stories too. That's it. You know, I was lucky enough to get to Building see Amy when it was on Broadway last year. What was the experience? What, what did you come out of that with? I've never felt more seen in an audience in my life. Really? In my life. And I see all the black theater because I know oh, who I am. Oh my goodness. I do. I do. And I love it. I love it all. But, oh my God, it was breathtaking. And he's 26. Yeah, that, that is really amazing to me. Yeah. I'm knocking my headphones up. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. To be, to be that aware, not only self-aware, but conscious of the greater experience too, to be able to pour that voice. To articulate it, yes, yes, yes. To describe it, to to display it, yeah. and what I loved about it was that, that it spoke wow. so truthfully to and about the Black experience. Oh wow! But in ways that were accessible to people who are not Black, oh. but it didn't feel like it was written for non-Blacks. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. There are some some shows about blackness mm-hmm. or about Asian Americanness mm-hmm. or about you know transness that feel like they are written in an explanatory way for people who don't have this experience. And those are valuable because because people who don't have this experience need to learn about what shows you know. do you think those are what what shows would you identify as those? Oh God, I can't I don't do know. Do you think Corgi can... and Bess is one of those? Oh yeah. Well I actually I don't yes. Okay. In but Borgia and Best was also written by white people, so it's yes. it is so less. It is about an outsider's mm-hmm. vision mm-hmm. of one particular black experience. Mm-hmm. It is it is not. It doesn't feel like it illuminates anything. A lot of the material written about black people, but not by black people, mm-hmm. in the twentieth century doesn't actually open any doors or any windows. Mm-hmm. It merely reinforces what other has said about black people. Mm-hmm. So if you are white and you see that entertainment and you do not have any black people in your life, mm-hmm. then it, it merely reinforces what you've learned about them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually tell you anything necessarily truthful. Yeah, you know. So I mean, as as beautiful as Borg and Bess is, and as considering when it was written and how it was written and who wrote it, it is not as derogatory mm-hmm. as a lot of the material written about Black life then. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it was considered, you know, a step forward. Why it was considered, you know, the, some of those characters are treated with a kind of dignity, even though their lives are tragic. They're not, they're not laughable. They're not used mm-hmm. to make fun, mm-hmm. you know. And and minstrel shows and minstrelsy, you know, took some things that happened to real people and made them into jokes. Made them into, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and untruths, you know. Mm-hmm. So I I think, like, I'm I'm very aware when I see something. Mm-hmm. 
that has something to do with Black life in America. Whether or not it feels to me like it was written for me mm-hmm. to watch or whether it was written for a wide audience about me or people like me. Yes. Know? And that's something that I don't think white audiences necessarily think about when they go see a piece about Black life, you know, or about a Black mm-hmm. character or, or a historical, an actual historical character. You know, I think sometimes they're merely thinking in terms of, is does this ring true or does this or is that you know if it's about someone who actually lived is is that the story i heard you know about mm-hmm. and and i don't know that they necessarily think of how it feels to us when we're sitting in the room so um, true I, and which I, is I'm one so of the things i say out. to people when it comes to material you know that that you there's certain material you can sing if you are white and you know your audience is all white and not give two th- thoughts about it but if I'm in the room, not only do I have a different experience than everyone in that room, but I guarantee you, if it's in New York City, most of that room is suddenly going to turn and look at me and see if I'm okay. Ooh. When you start singing Old Man River, you know, yeah. it's all like, oh, is it yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay with Natalie? You know, uh, I have friends oh, who are comedians no. and, and one of them actually made that joke <laughs> on stage where, you know, and he's like, okay, now everybody check in with Natalie and see if that joke's okay. You know, because it, that's what happened. You know, there, we have a different experience sometimes in an audience mm-hmm. and, and I being woke, mm-hmm. one of the ways of, would be thinking about all of the people who might be in your audience mm-hmm. when you, a show together i i was at an event last night and the mc kept saying ladies and gentlemen Mm. and it was crawling right up my butt and clearly he meant no offense but it's one of the it's it's an unforced error Mm -hmm. you know like friends i i personally say kids because that's who i am when i come out (laughs) i love that it's it's when i used to wait tables and bartend it's what i used to come up with for greeting new people because they because sometimes they were older than I was, but yes, I didn't yes, yes. Them to, but I, but f- calling them ma'am and sir felt like too weirdly cool. And you know? everyone feels young at heart when, yeah. when you call them kid and there's yeah. a peppiness. Kids, that you know. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, them. so that's, it, it came from that. It came from working in the bars, mm-hmm. but, um, but that's, that's mine, you know, but, but friends, you know, yeah, um, folks, I mean, there are lots of things you, you, y'all, you know, um, y'all, <laughs> all y'all. Uh, for, y'all. <laughs> you know, um, but there are many ways to say hello without making anybody in the room feel like you don't mean them, you know, That's right. like, like they don't count. Um, so uh, it's just these little things that we can start to think about can change. I mean, I've been on a thing for the last 10 years when I'm doing the hiring, mm-hmm. I try to never work with an all white band. And, and the only reason for that is because for a long time mm-hmm. I had, white music directors and they hired people they worked with often who happened to be white only because those were their first phone calls, you know, Mm -hmm. but because nobody thought about it, Mm -hmm. it's what, and, and especially as I started doing more and more political work, like I can't do a show about what an activist Nina Simone was Mm -hmm. and how ferocious she was. Mm -hmm. I can't sing strange fruit Mm -hmm. and Mississippi goddamn and four Mm -hmm. women and Bojangles and be the only black face on stage. Four women just gets me. I can't. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Also, it's New York City. Yes. There's no reason for that. Yes. None. So when I'm, you know, the one doing the hiring, that's, that's something I strive for. Mm -hmm. And I have been bugging all my friends about it, you know, because 
it's not a hard thing to do. And it's not that I want, you know, the people who are working out and not work. That's not what I, you know, but, but they don't have to have every job. (laughs) <laughs> yes it's right thing. this is the this is the whole thing i love what you said about pipelines i love that that is an image and inspiration that i am going to carry with me um along with so much that you have you have been so generous natalie so so generous thank you so much Oh, how I loved that conversation. Natalie is incredible. We could have talked for hours more. And just full disclosure, that conversation that we had was three hours long, start to finish, three hours. And we still could have talked. What you heard was a compressed version of our longer conversation. I just love her. Uh, My adoration for Natalie runs very deep. And ooh, that voice of hers, it just pierces the heart. My sincere appreciation to Natalie Douglas for diving between her bio with me and for sharing her gifts with the world. If you enjoyed today's new episode, please subscribe to the Virtuosa Society podcast wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and review if you feel so inclined. Watch for more Between the Bio episodes sprinkled between our regular episodes where I share the hidden stories of collaboration between female creatives throughout history. Between the Bio is produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser and title music by Carmen Justice.